0: we turning to Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to jump down to, uh, well, verse 10, the very last verse in Jonah chapter 2. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that... God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant, for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for what we saw last week. And we thank you, Lord, for this concluding study today. I pray that you would guide us, direct us, help us. May our hearts and minds be open to your word. I pray, Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit. Help me, Father, to preach what I should, say nothing I ought not, uh, help me to be bold where I ought to, meek where I ought to, just uh, speak through me today, I pray, and I pray all of us would be filled with your spirit to hear, that we would have ears to hear, that we would uh, respond rightly, and uh, may we learn from Jonah today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're picking up here today, this is our second study in the book of Jonah, we started last week, and... We're picking up here today right where we left off. Jonah is on the shore. He is dripping with vomit and stomach juices and things like that. And he is praising God for his deliverance. Uh, He hears the voice of the Lord yet again. He hears the Lord speak the same exact command that he had heard before, his amazing adventure on and under the sea. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it. But this time Jonah didn't run, this time he didn't get on a boat, this time he obeyed, this time he arose, this time he went, and this time Jonah preached as God had instructed him. So what happened? Well, just go down through this a little bit here. He entered Nineveh on foot. He began to preach, chapter 3, verse number 4. Twice he had heard God describe Nineveh as that great city, and it was. It was a great city. It was so vast that it would take three days just to walk across it, according to verse 3. He started preaching the moment he entered the city, and his message consisted of just eight words. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, chapter 3 and verse number 4. Do you not find it amazing that a message of eight words could have the, the effect uh, that, uh, that this particular message did? But such is the power of God. And I cannot help but imagine that there's somebody in this room right now, some evil person in this room right now, who is sitting there saying, I wish you could preach in just eight words, preacher. And so I thought about that, knowing that that thought would be there, and I thought, I'll bet you I could. I'll bet I could preach the gospel in eight words. How about, uh, for example, if you do not trust Christ, you will die in your sins. That's 12 words. It's close. It's close. But it's not right. How about uh, believe Jesus died for you before it's too late? How about that one? It's nine words. Are you counting back there, Paul? That's nine words, and one of them is a contraction, which would be cheating. So that doesn't count anyway. How about if you turn to Christ, he will save you? It's nine words. How about if I change it just a little bit? Turn to Christ and he will save you. Bingo. Eight words. It can be done. It can be done. I could even do better than that. Believe Jesus and be saved from hell. That's seven words. It can be done, and the gospel is not complicated, and so we need not doubt that Jonah's message of such brevity and such simplicity could be used by God to cause this tremendous, tremendous revival that took place. I actually think I could get it shorter. How about turn or burn? That's three words. That's not original with me, but nonetheless, it's still three words. We see the result of Jonah's preaching in verses 5 through 9. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, from the king to the commoner. They heard the word and they believed and they repented. The king of Nineveh proclaimed a fast for all his people in response to Jonah's preaching. Donald S. Whitney wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, and he had some things to say in there about fasting. And one of the things I found interesting was this quote. He said, incidentally, during the early days of our nation, Congress proclaimed three national fasts. Presidents John Adams and James Madison each called all Americans to fast. Abraham Lincoln did so on three separate occasions during the Civil War. Maybe we need that again. The result of the Ninevite repentance is seen in verse number 10. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented. He held off on the punishment they deserved. Why? Because they confessed their sin. They turned from their sin. They turned to God. As I read that, I can't help but think what a picture of salvation that is. The the same can be true for any of us, we all, according to the Bible, like the Ninevites, deserve destruction. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. All of us are lost by nature. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel chapter 18. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've never received the gift of salvation, the Bible's clear. The message from God is plain. It's simple. You're going to die. You're going to go to hell because you're lost. But if you'll repent of your sins and turn to Christ, just as these people did here, he will relent. He will commute your sentence. He will welcome you to heaven and into a relationship with Him. What a wonderful thing this was. The people of Nineveh believed God. The people, from the king to the very lowest, repented, verses 5 through 9. God's gracious response was to relent in his planned destruction. He did not do it, verse number 10. It's another amazing example of God's grace. He'd shown it to Jonah previously. He'd shown it to the sailors previously. And now in delivering Nineveh, God was once again demonstrating his unmerited, undeserved favor, his grace. It's a wonderful thing. But then we come to chapter 4, and we learn Jonah's thinking about all of this. Jonah preached. The Ninevites received his word, not as just from him, but as from God. I think that's an important little detail there. And they believed. And one of the greatest revivals that this earth has ever known took place. This entire city believed. They believed, and God's judgment was stayed. And what did Jonah think about this, this great preacher Jonah? What did he think about this? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Chapter 4, verse number 1. He was unhappy. He was displeased. He was hopping mad. And he was hopping mad because he preached, and an entire city listened to him and turned to God. He was mad. You know, I preach here every Lord's Day, or very nearly every Lord's Day, and I have to tell you, I am thrilled when somebody responds. It might not be very often, but when it happens, I'm extremely thrilled. I give invitations after every worship service. And you know what I see most of the time? I see so many people's eyes glaze over. I see arms crossed. I see people just getting this stony stare as if to say, when is this thing ever going to be over? And then I can, when I close my hymn book, oftentimes I can just feel this almost palpable wave of relief go across the congregation just like, you know, a breeze across a standing wheat field. As you're thinking to yourself, it's over. It's over. You know what? Unbelievers ought to step out. They ought to kneel at the front of this church whatever we have at invitation. Why? Because it's their only hope. Christians ought to step out and pray here at the front of this church. Why? Because we ought to care about those in our midst who are lost and need the Lord. I've shared it before, but indulge me as I share it again because I think it fits here. I think I've told you about the dear old elderly saint who used to come to Church every single Lord's Day. She would sit in the back because she was kind of infirm and she might have to get up and go out, so she'd sit in the back. One day she came, uh she she got up on a Sunday morning and she said, I don't think I'll go to church today because she had a head cold and wasn't feeling real well. But then at the last minute she said, No, nah, I think I'll go. And so she looked for some Kleenex to toss in her purse because she uh she knew she was gonna have a snotty nose and have troubles like that, so she couldn't find any Kleenex, so at the very last second, heading out the door, she grabbed a roll of toilet paper and tossed it in her purse. And as she got to the church, she sat through the service. And at the very end, the preacher was giving his passion, uh, impassioned invitation and, and, and calling people to the front. And she felt, you know, she needed a Kleenex. And so she reached into her purse for her roll of toilet paper. And to her horror and mortification, she dropped the toilet paper. And it began to roll all the way down the aisle. And she watched it roll all the way down and come to rest right here, leaving this great long streamer all the way down. And after the service, she sat back there quietly, hoping no one would notice. That was her toilet paper on the floor. And she finally got up, and she went to the front. And the preacher met her there with a smile and handed her her roll of toilet paper to go along with the wad she had in her hand. And she said, oh, preacher, I'm so sorry. I'm mortified. This is horrible. And he said, don't be sorry. That's the first thing to come forward in this church in 20 years. (laughs) Any preacher you would think would be thrilled when the word preached resulted in response and souls saved and. Repentance, wouldn't they? I would. I can't imagine what it would be like to watch an entire city turn to God. I can't imagine that. But Jonah experienced it. And rather than rejoice, he got mad. He poured his black heart out to God in chapter 4 in this prayer. He told God this was the very reason he had fled to Tarshish in the first place. He basically said, I knew you would hear their prayers and save them. I knew you were a God of grace and mercy and wouldn't actually destroy it. I knew it, Lord. That's why I didn't want to come. Let Jonah's little dark prayer sink in for a minute. That's an amazing thing to say. Here was his heart. This was, why, this was why he ran in chapters 1 and 2. He knew the power of the word. He knew the grace of God. And he feared that if the Ninevites actually heard the word of God, they might actually get saved. They might actually turn to God. And he did not want that how can that be how could jonah actually want these people destroyed how could he a preacher of the word of god be angry that god would save them well maybe a little understanding of who the ninevites were would help they were a horrible people they were a cruel and a vicious people they were known to treat their captives horribly one source from their own historical records Described like this, Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and most idolatrous empires in the world. For example, writing of one of his conquests, Asher Nasser Paul II, reigned from 883 to 859 BC, he boasted, quote, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors, I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens, I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him. His skin, I spread upon the wall of the city. He wrote of mutilating the bodies of live captives and stacking their corpses in piles. It was a horrible city. A horrible people. Interestingly, the prophet Nahum, just a couple of uh, prophets further down in the the minor prophets in your Bible, he would later prophesy to these same people sometime yet in the future from Jonah's time. And he called Nineveh the bloody city in Nahum chapter 3 and verse number 1. And the book of Nahum ends with his pronouncing woes upon them because they didn't turn this time. And judgment did fall. But uh, the book of Nahum ends with these words, Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? These were a hated people. They were hated far and wide. And that might explain why Jonah didn't want to go there. And it might explain a little bit of why Jonah really didn't want to see them turn to God. Now, as I said, they didn't repent when Nahum preached to them in the future. And uh, the city of Nineveh would eventually fall to the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians in August of 612 B.C. Vicious, violent people, also very idolatrous. They had temples there to several false gods, Nabu, Ashur, Adad. They were known to worship Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. So maybe that's why. I don't know. Jonah, chapter number four, went out of the city and he sat on the east of the city, and he did so so that he could watch what would happen, still hoping he could see God wipe them out. I think he was hoping, maybe he'd read of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was hoping that he'd see the fire and the brimstone fall, and he had his seat all picked out to watch the mayhem. He sat, and he watched. And while he sat and he watched, God amazingly prepared a plant, chapter 4 and verse number 6, to provide shade for Jonah as he sat there in his petulance. But then God took away the plant and replaced the plant with a vehement east wind and sun that beat on Jonah's head. And Jonah once again was angry. This time he was suicidal with rage at this turn of events, and he lashed out at God as a result. And finally, God spoke to him and pointed out to him, do you see how hypocritical you are? He cared more for a worm. He cared more for a plant. And he cared for the souls of Nineveh. That's what God's saying to him in verse number 10. God, on the other hand, did care for the souls of Nineveh. He cared for all of them, from the least to the greatest. Verse number 11 even says he cared about their livestock. He cared. Well, that's what happens. Let's let's ask ourselves what it means and how we might apply it to ourselves. And I think what I'd like to do this morning is consider two questions, which are in the text, and then one Final application. So let's look at it that way today. First, first of all, a question. Chapter four, verse number four. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? What about when evil people hear the gospel and turn to Christ? What about when others, perhaps who have been unkind or unpleasant toward us, experience God's grace and God's blessing in their lives? What about When the word of God bears fruit in people we just don't like. And I can see the looks on your faces. Ah, that's not me, preacher. I would never be that way. I would never be like that. Really? Let's talk about the Muslim world for a minute, should we? The Muslim world which is intent on murdering Christians everywhere they find them. I read just this past week an interesting bunch of statistics. Let me share it with you. The worst persecution of Christians in all of history is happening in our lifetime. The International Society for Human Rights, a secular organization, states that 80% of all religious freedom violations in the world today are directed against Christians. By the way, you won't hear any of this on our news at all. 105,000 people are murdered for their Christian faith every year. That's more than the entire population of Calvert County, Maryland. I have no idea why they picked Calvert County, Maryland for that statistic. Maybe the person who wrote these statistics lives there. I don't know. 1.6 million people have been murdered for their faith in Christ over the past 15 years. 1.6 million. There used to be 1.3 million Christians in Iraq. Today there are less than 100,000. They did not leave. They were slaughtered for their faith. Roughly 100 million Christians today live in countries where they face the daily threat of discrimination, interrogation, arrest, imprisonment, rape, torture, or death. Every five minutes. Every five minutes, a Christian is put to death somewhere in the world. That's 288 believers every day being murdered for their faith. And by the time the average American Sunday worship service concludes, and ours is getting close, more than 12 of our brothers and sisters in Christ will have been killed somewhere in the world. Now, not all of that persecution comes from the Muslim world, but we all know most of it does. Most of it does. How do you find yourself praying for Muslims? Is it right to be angry? What about the other side from you in our American political system? How about that one? How do you pray for them if you're a Democrat? How do you pray for Donald Trump? If you're a Republican, how do you pray for Nancy Pelosi? Is it right to be angry? That's what God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He he, he was asking him specifically, is it right for you to be angry with how I choose to deal with others? Even your enemies, even those you don't want to be saved. See, this has convicted me this week. I've been thinking about this all week as I was preparing this message, and it's been convicting me this week as your pastor. Because, you know, I confess I see a little bit of Jonah in me sometimes. I regularly find myself confronted with people who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but uh, refuse to live like they believe. I mean, just, just because our culture says it's perfectly okay to abort and murder babies, just because our culture says it's okay to engage in homosexual behavior or live together outside of marriage or divorce your spouse when things get hard, it doesn't mean Christians should do that. But it's everywhere. And I confess to a heart not far removed from Jonah sometimes when this kind of car comes crashing in upon me and it's a heart that sometimes wants to pray over such, Lord, they just won't hear. They just won't listen. Sick them. You ever feel like that? I find myself sometimes confronted with unbelievers who mock Christianity, who look at me like I'm an idiot as I try to talk to them about the Lord as they smirkingly spout some age-old argument like they're the first person who's ever come up with it. And I feel the same way. I cringe as I watch people who have heard the gospel over and over and over ignore it, as I watch them refuse to budge, knowing each time they say no to God, they're one step closer to being able to say nothing but no to God. And in such cases, I find myself feeling very Jonah-esque, Lord. Am I alone in that? Is it right to be angry? The second question is in verse number 9, and it's very similar. He says, is it right to be angry about the plant? Is it right to be angry about the plant? Now, the first question pertained to how God dealt with others. The second question pertains to how he chose to deal with Jonah himself. And by application, it has to do with how God deals with me and how he deals with you. Is it right to be angry when things don't go as we want them to? Is it right to be angry when God chooses to do things in our lives that we don't like? What about when he withholds blessings and we see him bestowing those same blessings on others? What about when he does give blessings, but then he takes them right back away, as he did here with the plant and the worm? What about when he sends the vehement east wind and the blazing sun to dry up everything around us? Is it right to be angry about the plant? You know, I confess anger is something that I deal with more now in my sixth decade of life than in previous decades. Interestingly, my bouts with anger don't usually have to do with big things, though. It's usually the stupid little things, the little niggling things that get to me and can send me right off the deep edge. My son got cancer. He went through three surgeries. He was nearly killed by the chemotherapy he received. He lost his hearing. He suffered irreparable damage to his kidneys. And, and I, I have to confess that I don't remember ever getting mad at God through that experience. My wife died suddenly, unexpectedly, in the midst of our vacation where we had gone to have just a fun, a relaxing week together, just the two of us. The experience with my son's cancer had been horrible, but nothing, nothing could have prepared me for The horror of watching Beth die. But again, I honestly don't remember ever really getting mad at God during that time. I'm not saying there there were no moments of questioning or no moments of crying out to God. I'm sure that was there. But there weren't many. He gave more grace. The vehement east wind blew. The sun blazed down. But he held me through those moments, and I felt that. You know know the kind of things that get to me? I dropped my keys. All the time now, in my old age. I cannot hold on to keys. I don't know what that is. I'm walking toward the door pfft, every single time. I, I don't get it. And it can send me into a frothing rage faster than just about anything that you can imagine. Just the other day, just yesterday morning, I was uh, walking into my office in the morning. And as I walked past my desk, I had my bathrobe on. I was, it was early in the morning. Uh, I walked past my desk, and the sleeve of my bathrobe caught a container of pencils on my desk onto the floor. Well, it wasn't just pencils. That would have been bad enough. But I, these are regular, you know, number two pencils and colored pencils and things like that. And I sharpened those pencils with uh, well, just a little tiny, you know, sharpener, and I put all the shavings in the container. So as I watched with horror as all these shavings and lead and junk went all over my floor, again, mad, not happy, anger. I was very Jonah-esque right then. Am I alone in that? Am I the only one who gets angry with the plant? We all face times where our circumstances turn dark or difficult or troublesome. We all face times when God seems to be testing us and allowing things to take place that we don't understand and we plainly don't like. We all face days where God seems to be sending a vehement east wind and a blazing sun. Is it right to be angry at those times? Twice God asked this question of Jonah. Twice he said, is it right to be angry? And he didn't answer it either time. God didn't answer his own question either, either time. But I believe the answer is implied. I believe it's clear in our text. I believe the answer is no. It is not right to be angry. I think that's what God was saying to Jonah. Not about the way God chooses to deal with others and not about the way he chooses to deal with us. He is sovereign. And so we have to ask ourselves why. And that brings me to the one application I want to conclude with today. Two questions, one application. Here's the application. God's love is endless. God's love is endless, not just for us, but also for them. God, amazingly, loves everybody. I don't, and neither do you, but God loves everybody. He loved and blessed and used Jonah, who was certainly less than what we would hope a preacher would be. He loved the pagan sailors in the midst of the storm. He loved those vicious, bloodthirsty, idol-worshipping Ninevites. God loves Muslims. He loves Muslims. He loves the hordes of people illegally invading our country every day. God loves Democrats. I expected to get stoned for that. God (laughs) loves Republicans. He loves drug dealers. He loves drug addicts. He loves alcoholics. He loves adulterers. He loves... Homosexuals, he loves abortion providers. He loves those who have gone through abortions. And he loves you. Even when you're at your most Jonah-like, he loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, "Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He loves you. His love is endless. Say it with me. God's love is endless. That was terrible. Say it again. God's love is endless. Not just for us, but also for them. God amazingly loves everybody. Let's all stand. We're going to be singing our invitation song in just a moment. But let's all stand. And I'm going to ask you to stand with every head bowed and every eye closed just for a moment, please. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I I, I just want to ask this question. How should we respond to such love? Such endless love? And I want to suggest three ways. Number one, we need to respond, first of all, by receiving it in the first place. Salvation. The psalmist said, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you come to that place where you knew you were lost? You cried out to God to save you from your sin. Have you ever prayed and asked for the gift of salvation, which he so wants to give you? He offers to even the worst of sinners, even to the Ninevites. Are you saved today? Are you saved? I wonder this morning who here would raise their hand and say, I don't know. I don't know. If I were to die today, I don't know if I'd go to heaven. Is there even one here in this group who would raise their hand? Just let me pray for you. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Is there anyone who would say, I don't know. If I were to die today, I would go to heaven. Anybody at all? Secondly, yes, thank you, I see those hands, amen, I'll pray for you. Secondly, we should respond by sharing it with others, even the least of these, even those who we want to not get it, like Jonah's Ninevites. You know, our mission statement as a church says, go and make disciples and do it everywhere, and do it until Jesus comes. Have you been engaged in that? Some here might need to repent of a lack of concern like Jonah had, a heart like Jonah's, and pray rather for a heart like God's. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who would lift a hand so I could pray for them about that. Pastor, pray for me. My heart is too much like Jonah's and not enough like God's. My hand's up for that one. Anybody at all. Amen. And finally, Christians, we need to respond to this by resting In that love, that endless love. You know, when the wind blows and the sun beats, we can trust and we can rest that God is good. He is always good. Whether our circumstances seem to say it or not, He is always good. And so, Christian, you can rest in that goodness and in that love. And so I asked this morning, are there any who would say, Pastor, pray for me? I'm going through some stuff. The wind is blowing. The sun is beating on my head. Pray that I would learn to rest in that love. Anybody at all? Amen. Amen. Father God, I thank you for all those who have raised their hands. I thank you for those who raised their hands for salvation this morning and I pray that if they would like to know more, they'd just step out as we sing, come to the front and let us show them from the Bible how they could know for sure. I pray for the Christians who have said, give me a heart. It's more like God's and less like Jonah's." I pray that for myself. And I pray Father that all of us uh, would have that even those who didn't maybe raise their hands. But, Lord, perhaps they need to step out and come and pray, and perhaps some would pray with them. Lord, if there are those here today who are going through things, hard things, troubling things, whatever it might be, I pray they'd learn to rest in you and to know that you're always good. And so, Father, whatever the needs might be, if folks need to come, I pray they would. And I pray that as we close our service with a song, you'd speak to all of our hearts and help us to respond as you'd have us to. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.